When I first got to Genesis, uh, that was like the summer of 2018. So when I first got to Genesis, you, uh, th- those of you who were, were here at the time probably knew that or recognized that I would speak some about LSU. I had just come from a church that was ministering on, on LSU's campus, and we had lived eight or nine years, however long, in Baton Rouge. All my children were born in Baton Rouge. Uh, our life was there. We lived five miles from LSU's campus, so it just became a pretty common thing to talk about. But if you've noticed over the years, I've really trimmed that down, in part because there were two member couples who would text one another during the service when I would mention LSU. So they, when they told me they did that, you're like, well, I'll show you. I'll not talk about it. They've all since moved away, so it doesn't matter anymore. So with that in mind, I just want to say the 2019-2020 LSU Tigers football team was perhaps the best of all time. 15-0, national champs, best quarterback, best wide receiver, best offensive line, best avenging back, best coaches, awards for days, they were good. Now as the LSU fan in me, I was pretty used to when the ball would get thrown, I'd just go, interception. Interception, thing like that's just how I felt, gone in my heart. That season, if the ball was getting thrown, it could be thrown it, it did 500 yards. I don't know how far, you know, as long I was like caught. I would always caught. I had such confidence and cockiness about it. But one group of awards you might not have known about or one notable part of that football team that, that everyone has probably since forgotten except for the people who pay attention to LSU football is that their production team created week-to-week the best hype videos in all of college football. In fact, ESPN even had an article called Meet the Team Behind College Football's Best Hype Videos. Like, they actually got, like, publicity out of their hype videos. And you could go online, you could watch them all, and so, of course, we would. I tell you, I kid you not, this isn't necessarily a good thing, But the one before the national championship game makes me tear up. Makes me tear up. They got all kinds of narrators connected to Baton Rouge in some kind of way. They had Shaq, Scott Van Pelt, Tim McGraw, The Rock, Anthony Mackie, better known as Falcon, better known as New Captain America, spoiler alert. So they had everybody there doing that. The Anthony Mackie one is the one that that brought, brought me to tears almost. And really, if you care very little about football, still, I would bet you that when you watch them, it's going to do something to you. It it will have some kind of effect on you. I don't care if you like sports or not. When you just watch it, something about how they would assemble those. And these poor, like, production guys would spend, you know, two and a half work weeks, it felt like, producing one video for a Saturday. Then the national championship got, I think, two videos. And then... Like the Heisman campaign got another video, and so it was just on and on and on. They really do a number on you. And I get it. I get it. Like, we we need to be motivated. I just made a playlist on my Spotify for my kids' baseball team called 9U Hype Music for eight and nine-year-olds. I ran through it with my nine-year-old just to go, is this song okay, is this song okay, is this song okay? So we ran through every song, and he's like, I don't like the popular ones. We have to find the ones that are less popular. So we found unpopular hype music so that it felt more special. 
So we went through all of that. And I bet you have ways. It might be music you listen to or a certain mood. Like if you like, if you want to feel a certain way, maybe there's a movie you watch. There's just something that you do to kind of give you all the feels. But my guess is also this, that such an approach doesn't last long. You have to keep going back to it. You have to keep watching it. You have to keep consuming it. Like, like over time, you might even become dull to it. So we know we have this, this need at times for motivation or enthusiasm to be excited, to be, to be uh, encouraged, or you could even say hyped up for something, and yet, perhaps we as Christians, those who follow Jesus, look in the wrong spaces for enduring motivation. Perhaps we look, we, we look a little too closely to things of this world to get us excited and it's not really just about taking the hill, it's about running the race, right? Like, you need hype music that's going to last you till you die, not just, like, through Sunday. And so, I wonder sometimes if we look for the wrong motivation to get us excited about eternal things, to get us excited about enduring things, that perhaps we don't know how to be enduringly excited about what God is doing or what God will do. And now every Christian in this room is called by God to make disciples of all nations. It is not a negotiable part of our identity. It is a part of who we are. Jesus, when he called his disciples, said... Come to me and I will make you fishers of men. That, that the call included the expectation of going, of declaring, of sharing. And so God has called us into something. He has called us into a mission to see the world full of his glory. Now positively for us is that he's bringing it to that end while at the same time using us. Because if it depended upon us, we would probably usually get an F. And so we're called into something that he's still doing, but he's using us to do the thing that he is accomplishing. It's a really cool thing about God. Like he, People go, well, how come God doesn't just wave a wand and just kind of make it all happen? It's like, that's just not how he works. He works in time, in space, with people who are disobedient to bring about his ends, which are glorious. And God has a way of speaking to his people when they potentially need motivation to do something that they've been called to. And it's not just winning a game. He has a way of reminding them, talking to them, encouraging them, rooting them in certain truths. Be it a pregame speech or a halftime speech or whatever other kind of speech you want to call it, when his people might be discouraged or wondering what God has, has for them, God responds. And he doesn't respond by, in this example, we're in the book of Exodus, he doesn't respond by putting Moses in a room and, uh, you know, playing flow right out louder. Like, that's not what he does. He speaks to him about who he is, the Lord, and what he has called Moses into. So that's where we'll be today. Exodus chapter 6, the last two verses, or the last three verses, 28 through 30, and then we'll go all the way through 7-7. Seven, seven. This is right before we head into the plagues. 
So it, it's like pregame in a sense. It feels like, like right before they're about to get into this moment that God has declared would happen, Moses is again wondering if he's the guy, and the Lord speaks to him about what he's called him into. Moments before, he goes back to Pharaoh, and they begin these cycles. The Lord reminds him of important things. There's a bit of a back and forth that happens in this, but we see the reminder from God, even when his leaders fear, and then it ends with obedience from God's people. So let's look at the whole passage first. I'll read 628 through 7-7. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that I say to, uh, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am on, of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? I don't speak well, is what he's saying. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So we get, we get the pregame. We get the moment. And you even hear in that moment, what do you hear Moses doing? But going, are you sure? Like in a sense, it's about to be game time for them. And he's like, are you sure it's me? Are you sure I'm the one? You even hear right then his doubt. It doesn't matter, it seems, how many times God has said, you're the one. Moses likes to respond with, I'm not sure I'm the one. I'm just not sure I'm the guy you want here. So the passage is positioned right before the plagues begin. We'll go through the plagues three at a time. We'll go one through three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then we'll spend a couple weeks on the plague of the firstborn, the tenth one. We'll spend a couple weeks there because that's pretty significant. And in fact, if you just look at the whole of plague instruction, that one gets the most play. That plague gets the most verses, whereas some of the other ones don't get as many. So we'll run three at a time, and then we'll spend more time on the last two. But Moses begins with a doubt. God says, go and do this. And Moses says, well, but, but I can't. I'm of, of, of uncircumcised lips. But before, right before he even has that doubt, what does God do? He's reminding Moses of the mission that he's on. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. Tell him all that I say. And I want to say this about our Lord. He is a gracious commissioner. 
He is a gracious commissioner. He calls his people and he prepares his people and he sends them with their marching orders and he gives them what is needed in order to accomplish that to which he has called them. What, he, what is needed is him. What is needed is him and he gives it. We need his presence and his power and his provision. We need those things and he gives it. But this is not new to the Lord. In fact, we can just go back both before and after this statement of go and tell Moses or Pharaoh what I say to you. And you'll see to Adam and Eve, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. To Noah... Just build an ark, and when finished, be fruitful and multiply. When that happens, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He repeats the blessing from Genesis 1. To Abraham, in Genesis 12, he says, Leave your family and go to the land that I will show you. I will, remember all the I wills, I will make you a nation. I will bless you. Through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. So it's a statement of obedience followed by promises of God on what he is going to do. To Moses, he says, go before Pharaoh and speak what I have said. To Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in the 8th century B.C., he says, you're going to speak my words, but the people aren't going to listen to you. They're going to hear it, but not hear it. But he gives them the commission, calls them into it, lets them know what's going to happen. To the church. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So, so God is always that gracious commissioner telling his people what they are about to head into. He doesn't just say, good luck, buddy. We don't know how it's going to go, like a pregame speech. We may win, we may lose. Nope, that's not the case with our Lord. Like, you know where you're headed. Moses, of course, in verse 30, like all of us, fear qualifications. We're almost to chapter 7 of Exodus, and Moses still doesn't think he's the guy for the job. Still doesn't think. He's 80, and he's still uncomfortable about what God wants to do through him. So if you're in this room at 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 and you're still doubting your qualifications, honestly, you're in really good company. You're in really good company. Because you just go, me? Me? You want me to do that? So he goes to the Lord. He says, how will Pharaoh listen to me? He questions his qualifications. He wonders if he's the right guy. But I want to say to you, because you might do the same thing. It isn't your name or your lineage, who your father or your mother or your grandfather or your grandmother were that God needs. He isn't sitting in heaven hoping that if only I could get so-and-so on my team, then I think we have the advantage. It's not how he operates. Well, if only I could get super qualified, unbelieving so-and-so on my team, then I think tactically we're better than Satan. He doesn't need us in the sense that without us, his mission will fail. He's powerful. 
and he uses weak people. So we shouldn't look at our insecurity necessarily as something to run from. It's weakness. And the Apostle Paul boasts in his weakness. Because I can't do this. I'm not strong enough. I'm not powerful enough. I'm not crafty enough. In fact, you might not realize this, but even the Israelites who are in Egypt struggle with their belief. A psalm actually speaks about this. Psalm 106. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. You don't have to worry about being underqualified or unqualified because you're both. In fact, you're less qualified than you think you are. Like that's, that's, that's actually what's true, is you, have, you bring less to the table than you even think. Which, you know, so go us. Because God isn't recruiting the best and the brightest. He's not building a super team, right? He's not the Brooklyn Nets. Just kidding, I'm just still bitter. He uses misfits and mess-ups. Let's not forget that Moses killed a guy at 40. Trying to be a, an excited or excitable leader. He killed a guy at 40 and ran. Because he was afraid for his life. Just settled up in Midian. Married a gal there and was tending to his father-in-law's sheep. That was his style. So when God uses women and men who feel like they don't have it together, that's about right. That's how he does it. And so you don't need to be concerned about that. You just embrace it. Yeah, I'm not good enough. Because it is the Lord who calls and it's the Lord who qualifies. Whatever natural talent or ability you bring to the table, great, okay, cool. You're good at speaking, you're funny, you're tall, whatever, you can dunk, all those, whatever that might be. Great, glad you're here. You know what? Still, we bring nothing to the table. And in fact, the Lord might never use a skill that you have. Perhaps it leads to your pride. Perhaps it feeds your ego when you do those things. And so to think that you have some kind of qualification that God needs in order to accomplish what he wants to do is just ridiculous. And at the same time, maybe you, like Moses, have something in your past that makes you think you can't be used. Right? You ever think about that? You go, well, I don't know if, I don't know if God can use me. Right? So there's the arrogant, God should use me. Then on the other side, there's the God can't use me. Because maybe, perhaps, maybe you've been divorced. And you think, God can't use a divorced person for his mission. He can't, he can't do that. Maybe you have a history of anger, and you just, you just go, I don't, you, don't, you don't need me there. The Lord's freed you from it, but you're still terrified that that person, right? If I stand up in front of people, there's going to be people in the room who knew me 20 years ago, and they're not going to listen to me. There's going to be people who saw me here, and I just won't have, I can't do that. Maybe you've recovered from addiction, and you just think, I... I don't, I, don't, I don't know if God can use that kind of person. 
right? So there's the, well, God must use me. That's, that's silly. And then there's God can't use me, which is just the other side of that ridiculous thought. Because if you're in Christ, then he's called and he's qualified. He's aware of who you are. He's more aware of who you are than you are. So we don't need to be fearful of what God has called us into, and yet it is so like us to go, ah, I don't, I don't know if I can do it. Are you sure it's me? Maybe it's the other Moses down the road. If you're in Christ, the Lord has answered the question of, are you qualified? And the answer is yes, because you're his. Now in verses 1 through 5 in chapter 7, we get to see what God reminds Moses and Aaron of. And he reminds them of his provision. What has he provided that is going to make this a success? And it is not Moses and Aaron's skills. Though he uses Aaron's ability to speak. But it's not because they're just ballers who are great. In fact, the Lord is going to remind them of what he is doing in order to prove the mission will be a success. First thing we see is that he gives the status needed. Verse 1 of chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Which is kind of an odd, you don't see that phrase a lot. That you're like God to Pharaoh. Now remember, the Egyptians were polytheists to the max. 1,500, 2,000 recognized name, known deities. They had lots. And so, for the Lord to say to Moses, I've made you like God. I've made you like somebody that he's going to pay attention to. Long term. Doesn't pay attention to right there at the beginning, does he? You have a status because of me. You're like God. Aaron is the one who speaks for you. He's going to be like your prophet. So I'm going to give you the status that you need to go before Pharaoh and do what has been asked. The text assumes or adds like God. There's a slight difference between what you see in 7.1 and in 4.16. 4.16 reads about this. He shall speak for you. This is about Aaron. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. This is Moses' relationship to Aaron. You shall be as God to him. And now he's going about Moses' relationship to Pharaoh. But the link is the same, that Aaron is the one speaking, and so has that prophetic role in that relationship. But Pharaoh is now the one experiencing Moses' power or the Lord's power through Moses. So the relationship in, between 4.16 and 7.1, the way God explains it to Moses, has changed a little bit. Moses is like God to Pharaoh, Aaron's the prophet. But Pharaoh is viewed culturally by the Egyptians as God or God-like. We've talked about how this is going to be the warring of the true God versus the false God. Like this, this battle is going to continue, and this statement sets that up. It's going to be a battle between the true God, Yahweh, who is, and the false gods of Egypt. That battle will continue. Now for us, in hearing what the Lord says to Moses, this is important 
God gives Moses a status and an identity. And for us in Christ today, it is so important that as we do what he has called us to, we remember our status with him and our identity in him. Because I don't go before someone and talk about Jesus as Hans. I go and talk to somebody about Jesus as the Lord's. I don't go and speak my words. I don't go and use fancy phrases. I don't go in some kind of cool power. I go in weakness and in brokenness. Uh, sometimes aghast that God even has given me what he's given me. The relationships that he's given me or the places that he's put me. God has called us into this. God qualifies us. We don't qualify ourselves. There are some passages, and I'm not going to read all the identity passages in the New Testament because I'd have to read about half of it if I were to do that. But here are just some interesting ones that kind of link to this language that the Lord is giving to Moses here in Exodus chapter 7. 2 Peter. We don't read 2 Peter a lot, but I love 2 Peter, especially the first chapter, first half of chapter 1. His divine power has granted us to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Remember, so he's given us power through the knowledge of him who called us. So he's called us. So we have power through him who has called us. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature. Again, it doesn't make us God, but it means that our life in God and the indwelling of the spirit that we have connects us to him in such a way that we are the Lord's. That's our status. That's our identity. We are partakers in God's nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. That God has changed us and transformed us and that you Christian are in him and he's sending you somewhere but he doesn't do that alone he's given you the power and he has called you and you actually participate in life with him that you are a different person <clears throat> in Christ Peter writes that Peter was somebody who was called an uneducated common man in the book of Acts. They were seeing these, or James and John. Like they were disciples called uneducated common men. He was a fisherman. John says it like this. You might be more familiar with this passage, John chapter 1, a follower of Jesus. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That again speaks to who you are. <clears throat> so when you hear a phrase like, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, well, you're a son and daughter of God in Christ. That's significant status. That's significant status, that you don't go somewhere as you. You're a child of God. You serve and you go and you speak and you proclaim and you care and you, and you, and you live as his. You carry that name, that banner of the Lord's wherever you go. You partake in the divine nature because of his spirit that resides in you, that does not leave you, 
that has sealed you for the day that is coming. That you have a unity with your heavenly Father through the Spirit that is like the unity that the Son has with the Father. May they be one as we are one, Jesus says. So we are not second class when we read Exodus 7, 1 and think, man, if only God would do that to me, then I'd feel powerful. No, God has done that for you. He's done that for you. You are like the Lord. You image him. You reflect him. You represent him. You know him. If that's not qualified, we're in a lot of trouble. He's qualified us to call us into these things. And so when we go, I can't do it, I don't know I can share, I'm going to be embarrassed, I might lose my job, and the Lord's just going, remember who you are. Whatever happens in an earthly sense doesn't change that. Whether they accept, reject, get mad, kill, whatever you might feel, whatever might come your way, doesn't change who you are. So God gives us the status that we need. He reminds Moses, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Aaron's your prophet. Well, if that doesn't make you ready, (laughs) what else do we need? The Lord telling you what he's done and who he is and how he's prepared you? But it's not only that, right? We're empowered, but what do we say? Well, in verse 2, we see that we speak God's message. Verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So we have this status, but we're not left alone with our language, with our message. The message is the Lord's. And so the Lord goes, you speak all that I've said. You speak what I've told you to speak. You don't need to speak more than that. You don't need to speak less than that. You just speak what I've said. No fancy words. I said no sensational presentation. I was meaning like with slides and PowerPoint. To turn a staff into a snake is rather sensational. But that's more about power, the power of God versus the gods of Egypt than it is about our own words, our own presentation. We bring the words God has already given. We give the world his message, just as Moses and Aaron were bringing Pharaoh the Lord's message. We've talked about Paul. He's a man who hated Christians at one point in his life. He was fine with them dying because he thought that they were anathema to the Jewish way. He realized by the grace of Jesus that he was in the wrong, and the Lord saved him, and the Lord used him. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That when Paul proclaimed to the Corinthians, Paul, a man educated far and above probably all of us, whose knowledge of the scriptures exceeded anybody in this room, 
who could sing it, recite it, speak it, who knew it. When he speaks to the Corinthians, he says, I did not come with great wisdom or great speech. I knew one thing among you, Christ and Christ crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. That was his message. I've shared before in this class that I help oversee for seminary, we ask the students to have what we call six spiritual conversations a semester. And that's hard. I mean, six in a semester, I doubt many of us do that. So six conversations intentionally toward uh, unbelievers or people where we're not sure if they're believers or not because you don't sometimes know, hey, are you a Christian? Because if so, I want to not talk to you. And if you're not a Christian, I want to talk. Like, we don't do it like that. So you might talk with somebody or speak with them. And, and it's funny because we ask the students to, to share about how they, in a sense, how they think they did. And, and the amount of discouragement that sometimes they feel over missing some element or I should have shared this instead or I wasn't prepared enough to have this conversation. They get really sometimes down on themselves for not, not feeling like they hit a home run in the conversation. And my response to that is always, that's okay. <laughs> like that is okay. Sometimes like really, and I don't mean this, I don't mean this to diminish long and, and good gospel presentations, but sometimes all you have is an opportunity to say, like, Christ loves you and he died for you. Like that's sometimes all you have. And you don't know if that transforms somebody's life. Other times you might lay out the most amazing apologetic for the gospel that anyone in the history of the world has ever heard. And people just yawn. Totally disinterested. And so we never know how God is going to use what we say, but we can have the same disposition, which is, I'm not going to try and impress you. Because my impressiveness isn't going to change you. It is only the Lord. So God gives the message. God gives the message that Moses and Aaron are going to speak. And he gives the message that you and I are to speak, which is Christ died for you. He rose from the dead. In him you can have life. Trust him. He is worthy. And you go, well, how, how might people respond? Interesting. That's the Lord's too. Verses 3 and 4, we see that it is God who is the one acting. He says this, verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm setting the stage for something that's significant. And Pharaoh... Not listening is actually a part of that significance. I will harden Pharaoh's heart because it's not about Pharaoh. That's what we're going to realize. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, that will be through the plagues. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then, after he will not listen to you, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, of chil the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Remember, this is about God continuing to fulfill the promise that he gave long ago. And so he says, I'm going to work the hearts and I'm going to work the conditions that this is all moving somewhere. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to see two types of statements about where Pharaoh is in relationship to the plagues. You're actually going to see three. You're going to see Pharaoh hardened his heart, 
Pharaoh's heart became hard or was hardened. And then in the sixth plague and beyond, you'll see the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So you're going to see three different phrases about the condition of Pharaoh's heart as we enter into the plagues. You're not going to just see one. But one thing God makes clear in verses 3 and 4 is, even the outcome is mine. Even the outcome is mine. That this is moving in a direction that I have planned. And even though my signs and wonders will multiply, Pharaoh will not listen. But there is a reason. We need to remember this, church. We cannot change hearts. We can't. We'd love to. This is the Apostle Paul's cry in the book of Romans. I would love to be accursed so that my people, Israel, could believe. If I could somehow trade my salvation for their salvation, I would do it. But I can't. Because it's the Lord who does this work. It's the Lord who does it. And though this can be, and we'll hear these week after week after week, that's what I said, we're not having a one hardened heart sermon because the passages keep talking about it, so we'll just keep talking about it. This can make us very uncomfortable, but really to recognize that, it is, that God's got it and to realize that not only can we not change hearts, it's probably better that we don't because we don't know the end to which this is all headed, Right? It'd be like, like, we'd be like Bruce Almighty God. Just say yes to everything. Answer every prayer, do everything, because that's way easier. People like you more. We don't have that, that the word that we might use, sovereignty or providence. We don't have the knowledge of what the world was like before there was one. We don't know what the new heaven and the new earth will fully be like. We don't know what it was like to be crucified, dead, and buried Let's leave the condition of hearts to the Lord and let's do the work that we know we do and let's let the Lord work by our obedience in these moments. And so though God gives us the status and God gives us the message, God also is the one who works the hearts. And that's a comfort because it means the outcome isn't mine. The outcome isn't mine. And then if you look at verse 5, you can see some of that, that destination, that God gets the fame. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. They'll know who I am. They'll know who I am. This theme is common in Scripture. I'm going to read these passages to you. They won't be behind me. I'm going to read these passages to you, and you'll see that God's concern for the world knowing him is right up there at the top of his revealed concerns to us. We've read this many times. The Lord said to Abram, Genesis 12, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Joshua chapter 4. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan. He does this twice. He doesn't just do the Red Sea. He does the Jordan too, right? So we have to know that. 
for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us as we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. Mm, we know this one, but have we heard this? Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. That the world may know, that the world may know, that the world may be blessed in Genesis Psalm 46, if you'd like the poetic version. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Matthew 28, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. God's concern is not just with Pharaoh. It's not just with Egypt. It's not just with Israel. It is with a world that should know him. That the things he's doing and the things that he's working, even in Exodus chapter 7, are about his reputation in the world. So that you may know that I am the Lord. You'll see these kinds of statements in the first three plagues that you might know that there is a God. You'll see these unique statements about God that even the magicians make. Plague number three, the magicians go, this is the finger of God. They're like, we can't do it. We can't recreate it. This is God. And so he's doing these things and he's moving this time in history so that he might be known. And then you look at verses 6 and 7. After the hype, right? No pregame music, just the reminder. Who you are, what you'll say, and how I'll work. Then comes verses 6 and 7. Listen to this. Perfect. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now look at the flow we have in this passage. Commission, go tell him. Fear, I'm not who you think I am, the Lord. I can't do this. Reminder, I've called you. I'll make you like a God. You speak the words I give. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, but your people will be delivered so that the Egypt may know I am the Lord. I'm working, and then where does it end? 
Moses and Aaron did so. They did as the Lord said. Christian, this morning, if you feel as if perhaps you struggle in your own obedience, it might be because you're not rooted in the things that are true. That you have not, you have not anchored yourself in Scripture that you have not surrounded yourself with brothers and sisters who care about you and, and, and your walk with the Lord and your own obedience, that you're trying to live this out in isolation, it will not work. If even Moses, who was walking closely with the Lord, like a friend, speaking to God face to face, as you read later, if this is how Moses felt about who he was. We need one another. God has given us one another. We need to have regular conversations, be it in our community group or our D groups, or just as we're here on a Sunday about where we feel inadequate. We need people to speak truth to us in those moments to remind us of what God has called us to. We need these moments. We need one another. We need that encouragement. We need that kind of truth because if you just leave me by myself, all of a sudden I'm overwhelmed, underqualified, underprepared, and just a hot mess. But together with the truths of Scripture and a faith family who is committed to see the world know the Lord Jesus, we can keep each other focused. We can encourage one another on. We can remind them of what's the most important. And when we sin and we stumble and we struggle, we can be told what is true. That this doesn't change who you are in the Lord. That is solid. It's like the conversation I have with my kids sometimes. Are you mad at me? Every, every parent has had this. Are you mad at me? You're so mad at me. It doesn't change who you are. You're mine. And my frustration is as your dad. And my joy is as your dad. My instruction is as your dad. So when we are with one another and we're rooted in the scripture and we're engaging it, and this is why we do so many things, to read it, write about it, memorize it, discuss it, is because we forget it. And we put one another in groups together so we can, just, we can stay at it. How do you need to be encouraged? How do you need to be reminded? Where are you struggling? Where is your identity faltering? Where might you need to be strengthened? How do we need to be praying for you? These things are essential to how we operate so that we can faithfully do the things God has called us to. To proclaim his goodness to a world that needs it. So that they might know that he is merciful. That they might turn from their sin and to a God who loves them to a Savior who has given himself for them. This is what God has called us to. It is joyful. It is hopeful. And the outcome is his. It is his. And we can rejoice.